You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, that feels really good to say that. We are starting a new year and a new series in the book of 1 Peter. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, it's just important that you would know uh, that this is the preferred way that we like to study God's Word. Uh, We believe that God wrote a book, right? You believe that? God wrote a book? And we love that book, and we love to devote ourselves to digging into that book. And uh, if you don't have a copy of that book, it's called the Bible, and uh, you can probably find one on your phone right now. Uh, if you just went to the app store, you could probably pull one up there. Um, and there's some on our welcome table, and we would love to get you a copy of that, and it can be yours as a gift. And that whole book of the Bible contains 66 smaller books. Uh, some of those books are letters, others of them are history books, some are full of poetry, some are full of prophecy, and uh, God has just revealed himself in so many different ways to us through these smaller books, and each one of them contains God's words about himself and, and that help us live the life that he created. And so at Oak Hill, we study this book by book, and that's our preferred method. And it's not so much our situations that drive what we study, but the fact that God is revealing himself, and he revealed himself at a point in history in a way that's timeless, in a way that's living, in a way that's active. And so today we're starting this new study in the book of First Peter. First Peter is a letter, really. I think we can sometimes forget that when we when we call them books. It's a letter written from the city of Rome at, at the end of Peter's life to followers of Jesus Christ who are spread out over a very large section of the Roman Empire. And so they are on a journey, an earthly journey away from their heavenly home. They're, they're not where they eternally belong. They're sort of outsiders in this world because God's done this work in their hearts to deliver them from the kingdoms of this earth into the kingdom of heaven. So I don't, I don't know if you've ever journeyed for any length of time uh, far away from home. Maybe you've gone away to college or something like that. Maybe you've been deployed with the military. Maybe you've even just gone on a long trip, maybe a missions trip or a vacation or, or something like that. Some, some of you maybe can't even imagine being away from home for a long period of time because you just love that you're home so much. You're kind of a homebody. But when you're on a long journey, uh, sometimes there's a certain infatuation with that place for a little while. Uh, you, you love the culture. You love the scenery. You love everything that's new there. There's like this honeymoon period. And, and then you stay long enough and there's a longing for home. Some call it homesickness. I remember uh, just different times that I've been out of the country and and, and just like missing the things that are routine and and the things that are just conveniences. I remember when Bruce was in Japan, we would send him like little care packages and they would contain like brownie mix because they couldn't get brownie mix in Japan. And and, uh, just all those little things that you miss 
when you're displaced for a long time. And Peter is writing a letter to encourage a people who are feeling that, who are longing for the things of heaven, but are journeying in the places of earth. They're living on earth, but longing for eternity. And he's teaching them how to live now in light of their future hope and glory with God. And so for every book study, I I try to have a a, a bit of a purpose statement, a bit of a vision statement for us so that we can kind of keep coming back to this. Why are we studying this book? What are we trying to go after? What's the goal that we have here? And so our purpose statement for 1 Peter, our vision statement is this. Let the hope of eternity change your life on earth. Let the hope of eternity change your life on earth. That's what we hope happens over the next 11 weeks or so through the preaching of God's Word. Uh, Our goal is not to just study a letter and and to know some facts about some stuff that happened 2,000 years ago. Our, Our goal is life change in the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work in us right now as His Word is preached. You should come to church expecting that God is going to change your life. He wants to change your attitudes. He wants to change your activities. He wants to change your relationships. He wants to change every part of who you are and get you ready for eternity. And so today we're going to dig into the first two verses of this letter. Just two verses today. Don't make you think that that's going to be a shorter sermon. It's two verses, but there's a lot there. These, these are the, the verses of greeting in the letter. And there are a lot of times the verses that we just skip over because we're like, oh yeah, Peter's telling us who he is and he's telling us who they wrote to. Let's get on to the meat. Uh, but, but there is so much here. There's, there's so much more than a trivial little greeting. The, the themes of First Peter are being set out for us. His whole purpose for writing is being set out for us. This is like an, an overture of a symphony. You know what that is like, like it's the first little part of a symphony where, where they kind of play all of the themes that they're going to revisit and, and, and kind of play around with through the rest of the symphony. Uh, this is giving you a taste of what's to come. Disney movies did the same thing back in the day. They don't do it so much anymore. Uh, but it was like a forever long um, you know, lead up in the Disney movie, if you ever watch an old Disney movie, because that's the overture. It was giving you the themes that you were going to hear all throughout the movie. And and so today, uh, here's our goal as we get into this book. Place your hope in God for your temporary journey on earth. Place your hope in God for your temporary journey on earth. That's what we want to see today is that this journey that we are on in our lives, where we are situated here in Solanco, Pennsylvania, is a temporary journey, and our hope is with God. And so, looking down in your Bibles, uh, look at, at chapter 1, verse 1. Peter writes, uh, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. So let's just stop there for a minute. Okay? Peter is, is signing his letter, as they did in the first century, uh, at the very beginning. So we always sign our letters at the end, sincerely, Ben Miller. Uh, Peter is signing his letter at the beginning. He's telling them who is writing. I think that actually seems like a, it makes a lot of sense, so you don't have to wait. and like I get an email and I scroll down to the end to see who wrote it. No, just right out off the bat, you know, like who, who's writing me this letter. Uh, So Peter tells us, uh, or he reminds us, 
maybe, that he's an apostle. He's an apostle. He's one set apart by Christ to be his witness. And in this sense, this is a very special office that was given to 12 men in the early church uh, to uh, proclaim and teach the foundational principles of the church, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So, So they had a very important role in establishing the church, and they did that through the writing of Scripture. So this is no ordinary letter. This is Scripture. This is a letter that comes with authority. Peter has been given authority as an apostle, but even more than that, he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. See, we believe that that the Holy Spirit used human agents in the writing of Scripture. And so he used their personality. He used their experiences. He used their situations. He used their grammar and their vocabulary. He used their journeys to write His Word. And so every word that is in the book of 1 Peter and every word that is in the Bible in its original language is from the Holy Spirit. It's breathed out by God. And and, and Paul tells us that it is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. we got to pay attention because Peter is an apostle. Now, he's an apostle now at this time of writing, but, but Peter's gone on quite a journey to get to that point himself, right? And so let's just think about the journey that Peter's gone on. There was a time in Peter's life where he was called Simon, just, just Simon. And he was, he was called that aboard his fishing boat where he made a living with his brothers about 30 years before the time that he's writing this. But, but then his brother Andrew introduced him to this guy named Jesus. And Jesus started calling him Cephas or Peter, which means the rock that he was kind of it's like, yeah, I like that name, The Rock. Yeah, cool with that. Jesus not only changed his name, but he changed his life. He started following Jesus, and, and he saw Jesus heal people, and he, he heard Jesus teach. And, and, and one time he was out on a boat with Jesus, and, he was, and Jesus was walking on the water, and, and everybody was frightened, but Peter's like, you know what, let me come out to you. And so Jesus is like, come on out. And, and, and Peter steps out of the boat, and he steps onto the water, and he starts walking on the water, but then he takes his eyes off of Jesus just for a second, and he starts sinking. And that situation is kind of common in Peter's life. One minute you're walking on the water, the next minute you're sinking. Anybody relate to Peter in that? But like the time that Peter saw Jesus like reveal his true glory on a mountaintop, and he gets all excited. He sees Moses and Elijah there with him, and, and he does what any self-respecting man would do. He's like, let me pitch a tent for you guys. We can all hang out together for a while. And, and God is like, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, stop talking, Peter. Stop coming up with all your own ideas. Listen to him. And then he just re- removes the, the vision of glory there on the mountaintop. Another time, Peter made this, this great confession of, of faith 
in response to Jesus asking him, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you are the Son, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is like, that's awesome, Peter. Flesh and blood couldn't have revealed this to you. Only the Father could have revealed this to you. But then about two seconds later, Peter's correcting Jesus about the fact that he's going to go to the cross and, and Jesus is calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And then there's the time that, that he told Jesus that he would follow him to the death. I'll go anywhere with you. I'll, I'll die with you, Jesus. He's like, no, you won't. No, you won't. You're going to deny me three times tonight. And that's exactly what happened. He, he did follow Jesus, but from a distance because he was scared. And then he denied him three times before the rooster crowed. And things started looking up for Peter after Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, he, he ran to the tomb and he found the linen claws lying there. You remember we studied that in Luke uh, just a, a few weeks ago. And, and then uh, he saw Jesus a number of times after that. He was one of the first to see the resurrected Christ, according to Paul in Corinthians. Um, and, and then he saw him on the shores of Galilee. You see, Peter had returned to those fishing boats. And he had gone back to his old way of life because of all the shame that had gone on because of the denial. And, and there on the shores of Galilee, Jesus restored him. He said, do you love me, Peter? Of course I love you, then, then feed my sheep. And that's what we see Peter continue to do all throughout his life. In Acts chapter 2, we see him boldly proclaim the gospel in the temple courts. And we see 3,000 people come to know Christ and are added to the number. And then he was preaching boldly in the temple day after day where he was then arrested but then miraculously escaped and he continued on in his ministry. Uh, this is the same Peter then who uh, a few chapters later in the book of Acts um, had the first ministry to the Gentiles. And God said, go and tell this Gentile Cornelius about the gospel, about the Messiah, and then he saw the Holy Spirit. And so Peter confirmed that the gospel went to the Gentiles. See, we wouldn't have all of Paul and everything else that's happening there unless Peter put that stamp of approval on it. And this is the Peter who was in prison multiple times, perhaps even at the writing of this letter, but just kept speaking for God and going to the ends of the earth as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And now, after all of that, in the year AD 62 or 63, just a few years before he's martyred, he writes his first book of Scripture. He writes his letter of 1 Peter. The Holy Spirit has inspired him to write this letter to encourage churches in the persecution that he's starting to see get really hot in Rome, and they're beginning to taste now as well. He's writing in a place that he calls Babylon in chapter 5. Now Babylon, like the, as we know it in the Old Testament, Babylon was like nothing by the time of Rome. And so uh, Rome had kind of just, you know, all, all the different uh, empires had decimated it by that time. And so Babylon is probably a code word for Rome itself. And in Rome, uh, the emperor Nero sits on the throne. Now, now he hasn't gotten too fired up yet, but, but he's already starting to put uh, some Christians in uh, his Colosseum and just for sport watch them kill each other and then die. Um, 
you know, get eaten by lions, that sort of thing. Nero's not a cool dude at all. And, and in a few years, uh, Nero is going to um, blame a, a huge fire in Rome on the Christians and, and, uh, and basically uh, annihilate them just, just in the city of Rome itself. He's going to light them on fire in the middle of the street and call them, it's, that's what we know as Roman candles. That's where the idea of Roman candles comes from. And, and so... Um, because of all of this, because Peter has seen the writing of the wall, he wants to encourage these churches who are scattered all throughout the Roman Empire to stand firm in the faith. And he does that by reminding them that this place is not their home. They're, they're sojourners. They're, they're refugees who are just passing through. There's a hope that awaits them that's beyond the current crisis. A hope that Nero, a hope that any other person or any other circumstance cannot touch. It is a confident expectation of eternal joy that is based upon the work of Jesus Christ. See, this place is not their home. They are now on a journey in a foreign land. And so ultimately, Peter wants these believers to see that their suffering that they experience now is not outside of God's plan. It's part of God's plan to help them get ready to experience His glory. God's prepared this journey for them so that they're ready for Him when Christ returns. And so in his greeting, Peter starts to introduce us to this theme. He teaches us to place our hope in God for the temporary journey here on earth. And so today we want to see four ways that we need to do that. Uh, the first is this. We've got to trust the plan. We've got to trust the plan. Your journey was chosen by a loving Father. Your journey was chosen by a loving Father. Take a look again with me in your Bibles at chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We're getting to know the original audience a little bit now. We, we got to know Peter, and now we're, we're, we're getting to know the original audience. That's a very important thing if you're going to study God's Word and understand the original intent of a letter, uh, which, is, which is our goal. We always want to know what the author originally intended to say, because what he originally intended to say is not, cannot be different from what we're trying to get out of it, right? It's always based on his original intent. And so we can ask after we dig into that, how does this apply to us? And so Peter has this very interesting title that he uses for his audience. Do you see it there in verse 1? He calls these believers elect exiles of the dispersion. The New American Standard uh, translates that word exiles as aliens. Now that's not like green-faced, you know, funny guys. Uh, that, that's like uh, I'm an alien in a foreign land. Uh, King James translates it strangers. Another word that you could use is uh, sojourner. That's where I'm getting this word journey from, sojourners. It's someone who is temporarily living in a place that is not their true home. They're on a journey away from home, and that journey makes them a foreigner. Now the term exile sometimes has this connotation of 
people who are banished from a certain place because they're being punished for some reason. So, so they've been displaced from their home based on punishment or, or persecution or something like that. But that's actually probably not the case here. So these are not Jews being punished by God in exile, like we think about the Old Testament exiles. And they're not Christians who are sent away from their homes by Rome. Uh, the letter seems to indicate that the primary recipients of the letter are, are, are churches with a lot of Gentiles in them. And, and there really is no historical evidence that Rome ever banished Christians and made them scatter into anywhere else in the Roman Empire. There, there is no government-driven, large-scale persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. There's a common misconception that, that, that the Roman Empire was just like oppressive all the way across. Like, even when Nero did his thing in Rome, it was pretty much localized to Rome. And it wasn't an empire-wide policy. That, that actually speaks to us a little bit. Because this is not like China that we're reading, right? Like This is like us. Every once in a while, the government does some things that are not favorable to Christians, right? But by and large, the persecution would come from your neighbors and your co-workers and the cultural pressure that's around. Now, certainly, they're under a ton more persecution than we are, but we can relate to that to a degree, and we are going to be able to relate to it much more in the years to come. So the word exile here simply means someone who's living in a land that's not their home. This is a, 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 an alien in a spiritual sense, an exile in a spiritual sense. They're living on earth while their true home is in heaven with Christ. They live in earthly kingdoms while their eternal kingdom is heaven. And so that's really what this letter is all about. Let the hope of eternity change your life on earth. As believers, our home is with God in glory. That's what we're looking forward to. That's our inheritance. And we can have a confident expectation of that home when we rely wholly on Christ through faith. That's our salvation. That's our hope. That Jesus Christ is our Savior. That He is Savior and Lord over all. And that we will one day live under His physical perfect rule as He places all of His enemies under His feet. That's the hope that we long for. And that faith and that hope will change the way that we live now because there's an internal transformation in which Christ has already taken control of our hearts. That's the book of 1 Peter. Residing as aliens, scattered, dispersed in earthly homes, away from their heavenly home. And so he mentions five locations where they're scattered. Really, these are large territories that are spread out all over what was then Asia Minor and is now known as Turkey. You can see it here on the map. Uh, the, the order that he mentions them was probably the path that the one carrying the letter would have taken. We, we think that possibly uh, Silvanus, who is also known to us as Silas, was the one who carried this letter uh, across Asia Minor. Um, and so he would have started up here in, in Pontus, uh, in, in 
in one of these major cities up here, and he would have worked his way down uh, into Cappadocia and then spent some time in the, in the major cities of Galatia here, uh, over into the major cities of Asia, which we know a lot of those, like Ephesus and Colossae, uh, Laodicea from Revelation. And so this, this letter would have circulated through all those towns and then, and then up into uh, Bithynia, and he would have ended there because he could have found some trade routes to get him out of Bithynia. So these believers are scattered over a very large geographic region. But they share this common situation. They, they suffer as aliens. They suffer as strangers for the sake of Christ. See, just because they're not political exiles displaced from their earthly homes does not mean that they don't experience persecution for being away from their eternal home. And while there was no law against Christianity and the Roman government often just left it alone, uh, local localized persecution could get pretty heated. Now here's what I want you to see in all of this. This was all part of God's plan. This was all part of God's plan. See, not all the translations capture this very well, but but Peter says that they are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect, or chosen, really describes that whole phrase, exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And then he says, all of that together, everything that you see here on the screen, all of that together is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The fact that they would be scattered about in these locations is ordained by a loving, heavenly Father. Foreknowledge should be understood in the sense of of, of a God of covenant love who knows His children intimately. That's the idea of foreknowledge in the Scripture. He knows personally what they're going through even before the foundations of the earth. He knows who they are. He knows their personalities. He knows whom He has chosen. And He loves us enough to choose those situations for us in which we can be purified in our faith. And So we need to trust the plan. We need to trust the plan. Our journey was chosen by a loving, heavenly Father. Sometimes my, my kids will ask me a question. Maybe it's about what they're doing that day. Usually it's about something that they want, treat, uh, you know, something like that. And if I don't give them an answer right away, or if I just say, hey, let me think about that for a second, they'll just keep asking and asking and asking and asking and asking. And the other day I had to say to one of them, I had to say, uh, son, I know what you want, Okay. I am aware that you want this thing. So I don't need more information about the fact that you want it. I don't need you to continue asking me. What I need is the clarity of mind to be able to think about what you are asking. And so please stop asking. All right? But he needs to learn to trust his father. He needs to learn that that, that I'm thinking about it for his good. I'm knowing what is best for him. And we need to do the same with our Heavenly Father, except He doesn't need the time to think. That's the beauty of it. 
He's known since the foundation of the world what we need. And He has chosen sovereignly. He's elected that situation for His children. And we can trust the plan. Our journey has been chosen by a loving Heavenly Father. So if you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, God the Father knows knows and has chosen your situation for you. That means three things. First of all, the Father chose you. If you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, then that means that the Father chose you. And that might mess with your concept of human responsibility, and it might mess with your concept of free will, but God isn't bothered by it at all, I guarantee you. And he says that he elects those who are saved. He makes it very clear in his word. He chooses them, uh, not because of anything that they do, uh, not because of any righteousness of their own, not because they're all lovable, not because he knows that they would make awesome Christians. I just heard like another radio host talk about, boy, if that guy got saved, wouldn't he make an awesome Christian? Wouldn't he be a force to be reckoned with? No! He needs to be brought low before the Lord! That's not why God chooses people. He chooses simply because He wants to show His mercy. He chooses the weak and the undeserving simply because He wants to show His mercy. The Bible describes us as dead in our sin apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we have no ability to come to life. We cannot do it. Dead people don't make themselves alive. And we think that we have it all together. We think that we are so good, but we would not choose God because we are so in love with ourselves and we are so in love with our sin that the free will that we have is in bondage to ourselves. We love ourselves. We would only choose ourselves. We would never choose God, and therefore He must choose us. Apart from God's work, we don't see our need from God, for God. We don't want Him to cramp our style. We don't want Him to invade our space. We think that we are God. And so dead people like that, who are separated eternally from God, who are destined to destruction by our own sin nature and choice, must be chosen, must be elected by God. And He does this purely because He is loving and gracious. We don't deserve it at all. So if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, listen, don't waste time debating election. Just don't spend any time debating it. It's right there. Like, what's there to debate? It's in the Scriptures. Instead, spend your time trusting it and worshiping God because of it. Be in awe of the fact that God chose you because you're a wretched sinner. And worship Him. Just worship Him. Now, He didn't just choose you. He also chose your situation. He chose your situation. The recipients of this letter were elect exiles. So that word elect modifies, describes the word exile. So they're elected to be exiles. God chose for them to spend time on earth away from their heavenly home. 
Have you ever had this thought, like, wouldn't it be really nice if God just saved us and then immediately we could be with Him in heaven? Like, that'd be sweet. But He doesn't. And First Peter is going to help us understand a little bit of why that is. Whatever your situation is, God chose to take you through that situation of living life in a fallen world to increase your faith in Him and to get you ready for eternity. And that should build your trust that God has the plan and He knows what He's doing. But He didn't just choose you and He didn't just choose your situation. He also chose your location. He chose your location. See, these are elect exiles in specific places. Again, they are elect, and the word elect is describing the fact that they're exiles in the dispersion in these specific places of Pontus and Bithynia and Asia and Cappadocia. Peter could have sent the same letter to Pennsylvania in the 21st century and said to those chosen sojourners scattered throughout Quarryville and Lancaster and Harrisburg and Reading and Philadelphia and Westchester. God chooses your location. He has believers scattered about all over the world. And maybe you've had the thought like, like well, if, if, if He couldn't take us right to heaven, wouldn't it be nice if He could just separate us out of society and give us like an island somewhere? Like, like give all the Christians Australia. Right? The rest of the world can have the rest of the world. We'll just all hang out on Australia. We'll build this perfect utopian society of all Christians, and that's how we'll grow in the faith. That's how we'll get ready for heaven. It'd be really nice if we could just completely separate ourselves out of the world. But again, that's not what God has chosen to do. He's not chosen to make a Christianized society or a government that is Christian or any of that. He's chosen to leave us scattered all over the world, a counterculture in every culture. That's part of His plan to work in your life. It's part of His plan to call others to Himself. And so wherever you are, uh, God has you right there, right now. He, He knows and He has known that you would be there from before the dawn of time. Does that baffle you? Write this down. There's a space in your notes to write this down. God has me, and then write in your address. You can do it shorthand if you want, but just do it for the sake of the exercise. Do it. God has me at your address, and then in and describe your job or your role or maybe your situation that you're going through that's really hard. God has me in that situation, at this address, according to His plan for His purpose. It's so important. It's His plan. It's His purpose. And if you really grab hold of that reality, just stare at that for a second. Stare at that sentence that you've created now for a second. If you really grab hold of that reality, it will change your life. It will flat out change your life. That your current location in the journey and your situation is part of God's plan. It's going to change how you look at your neighbors. It's going to change how you look at the people that you encounter at the grocery store. It's going to change how you view your possessions and your property. It's going to change your attitude 
when you show up at your job. It's going to change how you walk down the stairs in the morning and encounter your family. It's going to change your view of government. To be able to say that I am right now at the place that God wants me, that where I am is part of the plan of a loving Heavenly Father who wants to get me ready for eternal glory with Him, that's going to flat out change your life. So my question for you is this. Do you trust that the Father knows what He's doing in your journey? Do you trust that the Father knows what He's doing in your journey? That He has a plan and a purpose for where you are and that He's leading you to bring Him maximum glory in your life? Or or do you act like the events in your life are somehow a surprise to Him? Or that they're somehow outside of His sovereign control? Or that they're somehow outside of His goodness and His love? God shows you you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God chose you. By, by the way, uh, you need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ if you don't follow Him. There's no way to know that God chose you unless you have turned and repented. And so, so there's this equal side where I'm, I am to call you to repentance in order that you may be found in Christ and worshiping Him as Savior and Lord. Because of your sin, Jesus had to die for you and rise again for you. And when you turn to faith in Him, you can see, God chose me. God chose me. We're learning to place our hope in God for the temporary journey on earth. And the second way that we need to do that is to rely then on the power. Rely on the power. Your journey is in the context of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work. Rely on the power. Your journey is in the Holy Spirit's is in the context of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work. Look at your Bibles again. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So here's what he's saying. The fact that your chosen sojourners scattered about in all these places is in the context of the Spirit's sanctifying work in your life. Your journey away from home is part of the process that God is using to change you and to make you more like Christ in His holiness. Sanctification means to make holy, to set apart as holy. If you, if you never heard that word or if you need a good definition, write that down. Sanctification is to make holy or to set apart as holy. And so God's people are His set-apart ones. We're we're sojourners, we're strangers, we're aliens. We aren't supposed to fit in on earth anymore. We belong in a different place. We belong in glory with God. And sanctification is the process of the Spirit 
setting us apart from the world and getting us ready for that glorious future event where we'll be home in heaven with Christ. And He's doing that while we're still scattered about in this earth. So we are in the world, but we are increasingly becoming not of the world. Jesus had a little prayer like that, didn't He? That they would be in the world, but not of the world. And the Spirit is is working to release us from the world's allure. He's stirring our affections for something better. He's getting us longing for our heavenly home. And in our lives, this is a process. This is a process. There's, There's constantly parts of us that are more in love with this world that are in lo- than are in love with the world to come. There are thoughts and desires and choices that we make that have no place in the holy presence of God. And the Holy Spirit is on a pursuit to root those things out of us and, and get rid of them. He wants to remove these desires and, and these deeds of the flesh and He wants to replace them with the desires and the deeds of God. And He uses our journey to do that work in us. He takes our experiences and our situations and our locations and our personality and and all of it He uses to make us more holy and and to get us more ready for God's presence. But here's what I want you to notice. The work of of sanctification is in the power of the Spirit in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not your own willpower. This is the sanctification of the Spirit. And so Peter is showing his readers that the whole Trinity is actively and personally at work in their lives as they're strangers in this world. The journey is according to the foreknowledge of the Father. So there's the Father. And now it's in the sanctification of the Spirit. The power to get through the challenges of life and come out on the other side more holy and more like Christ is through the Holy Spirit. And so when I was in high school, I went uh, whitewater rafting twice. Loved it. Really enjoyed it. I would totally do it again if any of you want to go. Uh, It was a ton of fun. Now, Now the whole goal of whitewater rafting is to get yourself in the right current so that the power of the river sweeps you through the rapids. The power of whitewater rafting does not come primarily through your own rowing. So you're not there like, man, I'm really moving myself along. No, the the river is just taking you. The reason that you row is to get yourself in position so that you don't get stuck along the way and that the river can continue taking you down its path. You row to get yourself properly positioned in the river. So here's the application. Your role in sanctification is positioning yourself in the currents of the Spirit's powerful work. Your role in sanctification is positioning yourself in the current of the Spirit's powerful work. It's relying on Him. It's surrendering to Him. It's it's getting yourself around His Word to understand His desires for you. It's seeking Him in prayer. It's asking Him for the help that you need to obey Him and to produce the fruit that He wants to produce in your life. And so my question for you is this. uh, Are you 
getting in position for the Spirit to powerfully work and make you holy. Are you getting in position? Are, are you putting your effort in relying on the Spirit? See, sometimes we, we, we don't see the, the need to become more holy. And so that's why we wouldn't do this. So that's why we wouldn't put ourselves in position. Holiness actually kind of can become a bad word to some of us. Like it's, it's self-righteous or it's stuck up. Like you're going to be holier than thou or something like that. And so we don't rely on the Spirit to make us holy because we don't care about holiness. That's a problem. That's a problem because we're going to learn from Peter later in this letter that we are called to be holy as God is holy. And our whole future existence is wrapped up in a place where they can't help but cry over and over again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And if the call is to be holy as God is holy, that's a pretty tall order. And so at other times then, uh, we read a verse like that and we get all worked up and we run to the other extreme of relying on our own power to become holy. We say, be holy as God is holy. Now I have to perfect myself. Now I have to work harder. And so we create some sort of list and that makes us feel pretty good about ourselves. We, we look at other people and we, we say, well, I'm holier than them, so I must be holier according to God's standards. But the call is to be holy as God is holy. And you can't do that on your own. You, you, you will never be that holy. You need God Himself to empower that holiness in you through the Holy Spirit. And your part is to position yourself in the current of the Spirit's powerful work in your life. This can go back to some of the growth goals that you were creating last week. Like when you're creating growth goals, do you think about my power or do you think about the Spirit's power? Think about what I need to do and, and, and how much better I need to be or how can I position myself around what the Spirit is doing in my life? If you don't have a discipleship plan resource, uh, I can totally get you one. Uh, just contact me, email me. I even emailed one out last week, I believe. But the idea is to identify the areas that God wants to, you to grow in like, where is he convicting you that you need more character or obedience? What sanctification does he want you to accomplish? And does he want to accomplish in your life? And then identify those areas, but seek the Holy Spirit in his power to change them. Rely on the power. Your journey is in the context of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work. Now that sanctifying work is headed in a direction. It's headed towards a goal. There's a purpose. And so the third move toward placing our hope in God for our journey is this. Embrace the purpose. Embrace the purpose. Your journey is leading you to obey Jesus and experience His purification. That's the purpose. Obey Jesus and experience His purification. Purification. So when you're on a journey, uh, it's a good thing to know why you're on that journey. Like if you're taking a vacation, then, then you need to be on vacation. If you're taking a work trip, then you need to be on a work trip. If you're taking a missions trip, then you need to be on a missions trip. And stop treating like one like the other. So what's my purpose here? Look down in your Bibles again. 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. That word for is a purpose word. It's a purpose word. This is why God the Father would choose you in your situation, in your location. This is the aim of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in your life, obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with His blood. So that's a two-fold purpose, right? There's two parts to that. Uh, first, obedience to Christ. See your notes? Like, I'm not making this up. Like, it's just coming right from the text. You can do this too. You can do this at your house. Obedience to Christ. The goal of the Spirit's sanctifying work in your life is obedience. The, the reason that God has, has put you in the situation that you are in is, and He's caused you to live in the places that you live is so that you would learn to rely on and obey Jesus. This is part of what it means to be a disciple. Remember the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Disciples are to be taught to obey all that Christ has commanded them. Obedience is the result of God choosing you and the Spirit sanctifying you. I want you to know, if the Spirit is at work in your life, sorry, if you want to know if the Spirit is at work in your life, ask yourself this, am I increasingly growing to obey Christ? Do I live like Jesus is Savior and Lord in every part of my life? Do I know His Word and, and seek His Word for the choices that I make and, and the directions that I go? Do I make His priorities my priorities? Am I concerned with obeying all of the commandments of Christ or just the ones that are convenient and the ones that I like? Obedience to Christ is, is God's purpose for your journey. He wants you to look more and more like Jesus because that's the holiness for which you were created. That's the hope to which you were saved. And at the same time, we're never going to perfectly obey in all of life, which is why we need this second purpose of Christ that Peter mentions, uh, the sprinkling with His blood. Sprinkling with His blood. It's the idea of purification. Purification. In the Old Testament, uh, the sprinkling with blood was an act of purification. So lepers were sprinkled with blood in order to become ceremonially clean. Sounds disgusting, doesn't it? But, but it's this picture that, that something had to die in order for our cleanness, in order for our purity to happen before God. So lepers were sprinkled with blood. A priest was sprinkled with blood in order to become ordained and set apart. An altar was built and sprinkled with blood at the con confirmation of the covenant. And so these... The sprinkling with blood was a recognition that the person or the thing was made holy through death that was in accordance with the covenant. 
And Jesus was the once for all sacrifice to end all sacrifices and to fully and completely purify us before God. And so God is constantly working in your life to that end that you would both see your need for that sacrifice and that you would experience the reality of that sacrifice. In the Christian life, we must hold these two purposes together. God's ultimate purpose for us is to obey Christ, and God's ultimate purpose for us is to experience purification through the blood of Christ. And we do great damage if we separate these things. Positional purity and practical purity are not at odds. I don't even think that it would be right to say that we hold them in tension. That that makes it sound like they're opposing forces. But but God is working both positional purity and practical purity together in our lives. They're both His purpose for us. And so the question is this. Are both obedience to Christ and purification by Christ your purpose in life? Like That's what I'm going for. That's what I'm aiming at. That's what I'm focused on. The, the meaning of life, the, the purpose that God created for you is not difficult. Everybody's searching for the meaning of life. It's not, it's not that hard. It's that you would walk with God and bring Him glory. That's why He created you. He created you for relationship with Himself. And that relationship is played out when you obey Him as your God and you receive His purifying work in your life. And so in our journey away from our future home in glory, the Father is choosing, the Spirit is sanctifying, the Son, Christ, is both commanding our obedience and sprinkling with His blood. Praise the Lord for both. And all of this is a work of grace. God's not holding out on you. He's he's giving you everything that you need to finish the journey that He's ordained for you, which is why Peter prays what he does at the end of verse 2. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's more than just a trivial little thing at the beginning of a letter, uh, some, some nice thing that you're supposed to say. Uh, no, this is a prayer that they will need if they're going to experience everything that Peter wants them to experience in their life journey. If we're going to place our hope in God for the temporary journey on earth, we're going to have to seek His provisions. Seek the provisions. Your journey is furnished with limitless supplies of grace and peace. Your journey is furnished with limitless supplies of grace and peace. Every journey needs provisions, right? Like, I got three kids. Packing for the car to go anywhere, like even Strasbourg, is hard. You need snacks for the car. You need water bottles. You need entertainment options for the kids. You need gas in the tank. Every journey needs provisions. And God has given us two incredible, incredible provisions that Peter prays for in abounding measure here. He says, first, grace. It's the provision of divine enablement. First Peter 5, 5 says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's providing, He's giving grace where it's needed. He gives the humble what they need to resist the enemy and stand firm in the trial. It means that when we recognize our need for Him, God's ready and eager to draw near and, he, and to give us Himself. That's grace. When God gives us Himself, 
The second provision Peter prays for is peace. That's the provision of divine relationship. Peace in the Bible is, is the experience of everything being in proper relationship with other things. So your relationship with God, your relationship with others, your relationship with the creation, all of it is in order. And when God is, and God is the only one who can produce that peace in your life. He himself is our peace. And he chose us in our situations to make us holy, obedient, and purified so that we could have peace in him. When our relationship with God is in order, through the salvation of Jesus Christ and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, our relationship with everything else that God has created can find its proper order. When our relationship with God is in order, our relationship with everything else can find its proper order. And I believe that the fact that, that Peter prays for them for this is instructive to us. He knows that grace and peace only come, only come through seeking God. And when we seek God for it, God is ready and eager to give it in abounding measure. Abounding measure. Limitless supplies. Everything that we need for the journey. So here's my last question for you. Do you regularly seek the grace and peace of God through prayer? Do you pray for it like Peter prayed for it for these churches? It's where it comes. Do you ignore your need for that provision? Do you assume that He doesn't want to give you those things? Like He wants to figure it out on your own. Later today, maybe get alone with God, or even right now, God, I want to see you at work in my life. I want you to do the work that you want to do over these next weeks as we study this book. I want you to change me from the inside out because I've set my hope fully and firmly on eternity and I need your grace to do it. I can't wait to get into this re- the rest of this book. So today's just a glimpse of what's ahead. We're, we've got a journey for us. So let's sing right now that God will pour out His grace on us. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.